Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Hull Daily Mail and Newcastle Chronicle. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. This week, our local election focus switches to North Yorkshire, where the vote on May the 5th will usher in a completely new authority, covering England's largest county and the end of its seven district councils. Local democracy reporter Stuart Minting tells us how many in North Yorkshire fear the reforms will leave communities a long way from where decisions are being made. This is a huge concern that uh, decisions are being made by uh, committees and uh, officers that are based at County Hall some hour, hour and a half away from where these communities live. Now, this has been particularly pronounced in the planning area where decisions are being made by councillors who uh, have got little idea of the communities on the other side of England's largest county. But our main interview this week is with one of the most senior trade union leaders in the country, who this week is speaking to a northern audience as the Trades Union Congress's annual regional conference takes place in Hull. Conference is the highest policy-making body of the trade union movement in Yorkshire and the Humber, setting the political and policy direction for trade unions for the year ahead. And it's timely for a major event dedicated to workers' rights to be held in the port city of Hull, as it's one of the major employment centres for staff at P&O Ferries, which of course, listeners will remember, replaced nearly 800 seafarers with cheaper agency staff just a month ago. Frances O'Grady, the TUC's General Secretary, who steps down from her role at the end of the year, will be addressing the rally with a speech alongside local MP Carl Turner and West Yorkshire Mayor Tracy Brabin. So it's great to have Frances on the podcast today. Frances O'Grady, welcome. Thanks very much for asking us. No problem at all. So just to start off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you're going to be saying to uh, delegates in Hull at the uh, Yorkshire Conference? Well, I think it's really important that the conference is being held in Hull because, of course, this is one of the sites of what I think is some of the most shameful treatment of loyal, skilled crew that we've ever seen. 800 workers sacked by Zoom, no notice, replaced by... Uh, crew, agency crew, uh, some we believe being paid less than £2 an hour. And we've been calling uh, for action to deal with a company, P&O, that brazenly broke the law, uh, both in terms of failing to consult the unions on those redundancies and failing to inform the relevant uh, authorities and seem to have priced all that in uh, to what they did. But we're also saying it must never happen again. And we'll be upping the pressure on government to introduce a new employment bill that would strengthen workers' rights and ensure that you know decent employers don't get dragged down and undercut to the standards of P&O and that all working people have security and dignity at work. It's interesting you sort of focus on P&O ferries there, because obviously, as you say, the, the debacle about their decision continues to reverberate, particularly in places like Hull that were so badly hit. And I think what was striking to me was how little the government was able to do or perhaps willing to do to take action against the company. And given that p 
P&O, they insist that they had no choice but to carry out these mass sackings because of the company's financial situation. I mean, what can unions like yours do to stop things like this happening again or to minimise the impact when companies do make these kind of decisions? Well, of course, the irony here is that P&O is owned by a Dubai-based conglomerate called DP World that made around £3 billion in profits last year. But not only has the government not done enough to crack down on P&O, um, they've actually handed its parent company, DP World, contracts, free ports, um, you know, which are effectively uh, onshore tax havens, so they can make more money. So we immediately called for them to pull those contracts. But we're also really concerned because this is about passengers too. We've now had multiple safety breaches um, found on those uh, ferries. And, um, you know, we don't believe this is a fit and proper company uh, to be running ferry services, not just for passengers, but for freight too. Don't forget, this is important for the supply chains. Um, and security of our economy in the future. So we're saying if you can't find another company to do it, then the government should step in and become, as it has on rail, when we've seen rail companies fail, uh, become the operator of last resort. But in the end, you know, for working people, this kind of uh, treatment is shameful, it's disgraceful, it's unlawful by the company's own admission. But we as working people have to get organised and support each other. Um, and the best way to do that, of course, is joining a union and getting active. Yeah, so so what you're suggesting there is that the government should do what they did with rail and, and sort of effectively nationalise some of these services. I mean, is there the risk there that the taxpayer would then take on the burden of services if they become sort of un- unsustainable? Is that is that too much of a burden to place on, on that? I disagree, but it's, you know, it has to be possible to have a business model that doesn't depend on exploiting, um, you know, vulnerable migrant workers on less than £2 an hour um, and doesn't have to depend on breaching basic safety standards and requires people to behave themselves like good corporate citizens. And if you can't, if your business model isn't viable on that basis, then you shouldn't be in business. Now, one of the uh, things you just mentioned there was obviously the Freeport system, which is, of course, one of the government's flagship post-Brexit policies, as they uh, as they describe it. And I know at the regional conference that you're just about to appear at, that one of the motions being discussed uh, relates to Freeport. And I think it's that Metro mayors and councils create so-called trade union recognition zones where developers applying for planning permission to establish logistic depots and lobby parks and things like that must insist on trade union recognition at planning stage. And obviously, Hull and the Humber, but also Teesside and uh, Merseyside are areas where these low-tax freeports are being created. And I know there are concerns about workers' rights there too. These trade union recognition zones, are they the answer to the concerns people have about freeports and the sort of impact on unemployment rights? I think they would go a long way to reassure people that this isn't just about, uh, you know, give away tax havens for the wealthy and worsening workers' rights. 
there are examples in other parts of the world where free ports have been used precisely to do just that. Um, and, you know, I think it would certainly uh, build people's confidence if they knew that this wasn't just about some people getting rich quick um, at the expense of working people, but that working people had that basic right to a voice at work with a proper trade union agreement setting proper terms and conditions. That's interesting. And another uh, motion that's being discussed at the uh, regional assembly. I, you may not be necessarily an expert in the, the politics of Yorkshire and the Humber, but I see that one of the motions is calling for the establishment of a an elected assembly for Yorkshire based on the London assembly model. I mean, how well does the whole assembly model work in London as far as you're concerned? Is, is it something other parts of the country should be emulating? Would it Would it achieve a fairer economy, a sort of better political system if we had that assembly? Well, I guess, uh, you know, whether or not there's more devolution in Yorkshire is a matter for people in Yorkshire. But from my perspective, um, I think it makes a huge difference whether uh, what the politics of the assembly and the mayors, the metro mayors uh, like Sadiq Khan in London or Andy and Steve uh, in Liverpool and Manchester, you know, it depends on the values of the people leading um, those organisations. And, uh, you know, I think Tracy Brabin, for example, when it comes to issues like transport, she gets it. She gets why people are fed up of being ripped off uh, and want, for example, but the buses under public control, uh, why we want real investment in rail around the country, but the North must get its fair share. Um, you know, it does, it's, it's absolutely bizarre that it is quicker to get from London to Paris than it is to get from Hull to Liverpool. You know, something has gone badly wrong. And again, it's important not just for commuters, uh, it's important for freight too, and economic development. So, you know, I, I'm interested However, that debate ends up, and that's a matter for uh, union delegates um, elected to represent their unions in that debate. But however it ends up, what I'm interested in and what is what we're going to do about it. What power do people have to make the changes that ordinary working families clearly desperately need um, to make our communities stronger, safer and better places to work? Now, I was interested this week, you joined forces with Zero Hours Justice founder Julian Richer and, and, and others to uh, call on the government to tackle insecure work and zero hours contract. And you said that insecure work has become endemic in the UK. What, what, did, what did you mean by that? Well, we've, we've seen this horrendous growth in insecure contracts, you know, which has just become a kind of fact of life in the world of work in a way that it hasn't been for many years. It's really taken off and it's very often associated with low pay and poor treatments. Uh, you know, over a million zero hours workers in the UK now, many more um, on agency contracts or what we call bogus self-employment. You know, if people genuinely want to be self-employed, fantastic. But when they're forced onto um, into umbrella company contracts or into bogus self-employment just because it's 
cheaper for the employer to pretend somebody is self-employed so they don't have to pay the same contributions on them or give them the same rights even to the national minimum wage. That's a big problem. And um, so it is about wanting to see stronger rights for workers, but it's also about tougher enforcement. Now, I happen to believe unions are the best way for workers to enforce their rights, but we need support from the government in terms of inspectors on the ground. And I'm afraid they are few and far between. So, you know, hence you end up with the likes of P&O saying, brazenly that yes they knew they were breaking the law um, but they'd figured out it would cost them very little in terms of sanctions or penalties so they can get away with it uh, you know that can't be right that you know in any other walk of life if you or me were to break the law we'd get clobbered and rightly so uh, I, I think the likes of P&O and I'm afraid too many other bad employers need to get the same message that uh, we need a government who is prepared to get tough on some of these corporate gangsters. So after nine years at the helm of the TUC, all of which have obviously been under a Conservative government, you're uh, leaving the role at the end of this year. And How far do you feel the cause of trade unionism has advanced in the time that you've been uh, in in this role? Do, Do you feel unions have a a greater role now than they did when you first took over? Or have there been areas where your cause has been sort of set back somewhat? I think the union movement proved its worth during the pandemic. I don't know who else would have been fighting for health and safety standards um, and, you know, not only talking about it, but doing it with thousands and thousands of health and safety reps doing an incredible job protecting people. I don't know who else would have been leading the charge for an independent public inquiry, uh, particularly pointing out who it was who bore the brunt of the pandemic, why so many key workers didn't have proper PPE, uh, you know, were made huge personal sacrifices for very little reward and are still being denied fair rewards. And of course, the furlough scheme, which had its peak protected around 12 million livelihoods. That was a great union idea that we fought for and won. And, you know, any of us who lived, some of us older ones who lived through the 1980s, we knew that mass unemployment was the biggest threat that we faced after the pandemic. And so that was, you know, again, something that unions can be proud of. But, you know, every day of the week, I talk to union reps who are sticking up for fellow workers, making sure that people get treated fairly and with respect. And I think they do an incredible public service and should be respected and thanked for the work that they do. So, you know, I'm very pleased that the union movement Our membership is growing modestly, but it is at least going in the right direction. We need to get much bigger and stronger if we're going to have the fairer society and fairer workplaces that we all want to see. So join the union, I guess, is my message. (laughs) Still is. Francis O'Grady, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you.
with the May the 5th local elections now just a matter of days away, let's head to another part of the North and find out what's occupying the minds of voters and political leaders. This week, we're in North Yorkshire, home to two national parks, Chancellor Rishi Sunak, and more importantly, a population of some 600,000 people in towns and villages spread across England's largest county. Local elections this year are set to be particularly interesting as the entire local government structure is being thrown out and replaced. The two-tier system of district councils and a county council will from next year be superseded by one North Yorkshire council for the entire county. But what does the future hold after the most radical shake-up to North Yorkshire politics in decades? Let's find out with Stuart Minting, a local democracy reporter for North Yorkshire. Welcome, Stuart. Hello. You have been covering North Yorkshire politics for a while. Can you just give us a bit of background to this year's local elections and how we got here? Because this year's elections are a bit different to normal, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, this year's elections have, in a way, been a a long time in the coming. About 10 years ago, the uh, Tory leadership of North Yorkshire County Council uh, uh, attempted to persuade the government to create a unitary authority in the uh, county, believing that there would be great economic efficiencies that could be achieved from getting rid of the district and borough councils. Now, uh, this uh, went down like a lead balloon with the government at the time, who decided that North Yorkshire was far too large a county to be just a unitary authority. Fast forward to Two years ago, the government uh, then told North Yorkshire County Council that as a result of their demand, their wish for uh, devolution, a prerequisite would be uh, creating a unitary authority. So uh, then that uh, led to what was quite a bitter battle between the district and borough councils and the county council over the size and shape of the new unitary authority. The county council eventually won over in persuading the government that the county should just have a single unitary authority. May will see uh, the elections for the, uh, the first elections for this new authority. And uh, uh, councillors will be voted in for, for a five-year period the first year they will they will continue to serve uh, North Yorkshire County Council and after that they will be uh, serving on an authority that is going to be titled North Yorkshire Council. One of the criticisms I think uh, that people have of this system is that it means that as opposed to say if you live in Selby, the decisions about where you live are made quite near to you in, in Selby now because you've got this huge area that's covered by one council, if you live in Selby or Scarborough uh, or Richmondshire, the decisions are going to be made in County Hall in North Allerton, which for many people in North Yorkshire is quite a long way away. So that, that, that's been quite a concern, hasn't it, for, for, for people as, this, as these reforms have sort of been going on? This is a huge concern that uh, decisions are being made by committees and uh, officers that are based at County Hall, some hour, hour and a half away from where these communities live. Now, this has been particularly pronounced in the planning area, where decisions are being made by councillors who uh, have got little idea of the 
communities on the other side of England's largest county. The council's leadership has acknowledged uh, such such concerns and uh, has suggested that issues such as planning on the new authority can be dealt with by uh, launching uh, separate area committees that have greater local knowledge. However, the most pressing and important decisions are still likely to be made centrally at County Hall. In addition to this, uh, the council's leadership uh, has uh, suggested that uh, certain powers can be divested to parish and town councils. However, many town and parish councils have already indicated that they do not feel that they have the resources to be taking on any extra work. So there's a few concerns that need to be uh, addressed, I think, going, going forward. But leaving aside how we actually got here, what are the big issues going to be for voters at these elections? What are the big sort of uh, topics of importance in, in North Yorkshire? I would say probably the most common topic uh, that comes up uh, at the meetings uh, which I attend uh, are residents' concerns over speeding in villages. This is a an issue that uh, successive police commissioners have tried to get to grips with. And uh, also, there's been a lot of uh, frustration directed towards the county council as the highways authority. That will certainly be one of the key issues which voters look to. But also, also uh, environmental issues have uh, become one of the uh, leading uh, issues that residents uh, are raising at meetings. There has been uh, criticism that the County Council, which has set a more ambitious climate change target than, than many local authorities in looking to achieve net zero by 2030, the County Council is still not moving fast enough and encouraging people to do more. So that's certainly also going to be a major issue. Now, one interesting element of the elections this year, I think, is the issue of how representative the council will be. And uh, I see that you wrote a really interesting piece about the uh, gender imbalance amongst the prospective candidates for North Yorkshire Council. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, uh, looking at the uh, 310 candidates running to serve uh, on the new North Yorkshire Council from next month, um, uh, I found that just uh, uh, 90 of the 310 candidates were women. All the main parties contesting the election are fielding significantly fewer women candidates than men, a situation which is also replicated by the independent candidates as a group. Of its 90 candidates, the Conservatives are fielding just 20 women. The Liberal Democrats have 13 out of 48. The Green Party has 18 out of 50. Labour, 19 out of 67. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue across the board. Campaigners for uh, uh, women uh, in politics have uh, suggested that the gender imbalance of the candidates is unacceptable, particularly when you view it in uh, regards of uh, some other nearby local authorities, such as Leeds City Council, which has got more than 50% of its councillors uh, who are women. And finally, you, know, you, you spend most of your working life looking at North Yorkshire politics and only particularly 
interesting uh, local council seats or local rivalries that you, that people might want to keep an eye on uh, ahead of May the 5th? Well, there's been a, a number of long, long-serving Tory councillors who uh, haven't been uh, selected, partly due to there being a surfeit of uh, councillors as uh, the district councils uh, are effectively uh, abolished. Got a uh, a situation where uh, um, uh, well-known Tory councillors are going head to head against each other, uh, but one of them um, would be uh, would be an independent councillor. Uh, for instance, uh, the chairman of the uh, North York Moors Planning Committee, David Hugill, is uh, standing in the Hutton Rugby and Osmotherley division against a Hambleton. Council cabinet member Bridget Fortune, who is of course conservative. Uh, uh, the situation has been similar in Rydale, where other well-known and long-standing uh, Tory councillors uh, have uh, effectively been deselected. That's uh, uh, causing causing some concern for the uh, Tory uh, leadership because it could mean that. Uh, these long-standing former Tory councillors take the uh, seats. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. 